Guess what? Our Bible study today is entitled Standing Firm. <laughs> Woo! Good timing, Lord. <laughs> We're going to be studying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, one of the great pleasures of being a parent or a grandparent is watching the children in your family grow up. And um, because we live one street over from Paul and Bree and Miles and Levi, we've watched Miles and Levi right from the get-go uh, growing up and, and uh, doing all those major milestones of life. And, and recently, in the last few months, uh, Levi has mastered walking. You see him walking around here. And, and it was truly hilarious to watch him acquire the skill from the very beginning because one day he's just crawling along, he's happy to be crawling, and then all of a sudden one day he gets the urge to stand to his feet. And after, he, he makes several attempts and he kind of gets up, totters, and plops back down on his backside. And um, then the moment came where he stood to his feet, he calibrated his balance, and he remained standing. And, and he broke out into the biggest smile. And you got to see this kid smile and melt you. You know, he broke out into this big smile like, yeah, I've got this. You know, I've got this. And then after that, you know, the steps come, the little orangutan walk when they get, you know, when they first start. And, and he gets his base firmed up. And before you know it, now he's walking all over the place. It's just precious. But as I thought about that, and I'm looking at what Paul is doing in this chapter, I'm thinking that, you know, Standing firm, being able to stand firm is a prerequisite to be able to walk. If you cannot stand, you cannot walk. And this becomes a great metaphor for what Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians and commending them for because our faith is described by a walk throughout the Bible, isn't it? This is something that we see all the time. We call it a walk of faith. But a walk of faith, a walk of anything which develops over time must be preceded by the ability to stand in your faith, to stand in your faith. We cannot proceed in our faith unless we can first stand firm in it. And that's the one thing I'm so thankful that the Lord gave me that, that week ago Friday is just, hey, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to stand here. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any responsibility for how his podcast goes. I only want to make sure my testimony is firm. And, um, and so Paul is commending them because he sees them, based on the report that Timothy brings back to him, he sees them standing firm in the face of persecution, in the face of all of the worldly temptations that were true of the Greek world in the first century. Standing firm even that they had a burden of ignorance because they were basically new believers. And so Paul has sent Timothy, as we're going to see here, to establish them. That is to say, to guide them, to help them stand and then to walk. And so the news that Timothy brings back to Paul, it's good news. And Paul has all kinds of joy concerning it. And he commends them for standing firm in their faith and for uh, doing the things that, that evidence a 7.0 out of 7 belief in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Paul's commendation to this church, we're going to draw out some things that he calls out as vital if we want to stand in our faith. First of all, the value of having a godly mentor, someone that's there. Paul and Bree were there, probably older brother Miles was there, Michelle was there a lot, I was there to help little Levi get to his feet, 
Take your hands off them. Let them try standing there. The value of a godly mentor. The value of forewarning of trials. The power of the word of God. And the necessity of prayer. These are all things that Paul calls out in this passage. So if you would, please stand with me. We're going to just read the first eight verses for now. And then uh, later in the Bible study, we'll complete the chapter. Just 13 verses. And where we're picking up in verse 1 of chapter 3 is is following along with the last three, four verses of chapter 2. Where Paul is talking about how he, he... He's desiring to see them. He's longing to be with them. He desires to have renewed fellowship with them. And then he picks up in verse three or verse one of chapter three. And he says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that you would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter has tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us <coughs> as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that just like these Thessalonians, Lord, that we might stand firm in our faith, notwithstanding the temptations, <coughs> not was, <coughs> sorry, notwithstanding um, the weakness of our own flesh, Lord. And so, Lord, we look to you just as they did, and we look for that encouragement, and we look for the power of your spirit working in the power of your word to change us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 <coughs> Do you have water? Um, <coughs> <Bree>. <coughs> Sorry. There's about... <coughs> Thank you. I knew. See, when I didn't see him back there, I knew. He's way ahead of me. Sorry. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. The dry air is uh, killer. All right. First, let's look at the importance of a mentor. You know, standing, as I'm standing here in front of you, this is my body's defiance in the face of the power of gravity. That's what standing is, right? We're, we're opposing gravity. And um, when we learned how to stand, we needed help from a stronger, already standing person to come to our feet. And this, as I said, is very symbolic of what it takes for us to become able to stand firm in our faith. Standing in our faith is our spirit's defiance in the face of the power of sin. It just is. I mean, we know that we're born with a sin nature, don't we? And um, left to ourselves, everything that Paul says about us in Romans chapter three is true. There is none who seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. We would never understand, we would never seek, and we would never be righteous apart from the Lord. 
And so standing in faith means that we stand in opposition to powers, principalities. If you would, just flip a few pages over <coughs> to Ephesians chapter 6. And what we read there in Ephesians 6, picking up in verse 10, we read, finally, my brethren and sistren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How many times do we see the word stand appear in that passage? Paul is using, as he often does, the imagery of battle. It's very apropos Im imagery because we are in a battle. And in a battle in the first century, you were not firing rockets over the horizon and they would explode and you'd never see the destruction you brought upon your enemy. You were literally face to face within an arm's length of your enemy. If you were successful in killing them, they would be blowing out their last breath in your face. And in order to fight that kind of battle, you needed to have a firm base. Uh, this is why one of the aspects of the armament of a Roman soldier were sandals or shoes that had metal cleats on them because very often the, as the two armies would clash, they'd be pushing against one another. And if you were able to push the enemy back, perhaps they're stumbling back and you can dispatch them that way. And so we see him, tell, we see Paul telling the Ephesians to stand against the wiles of the devil, to withstand in an evil day, um, to stand, therefore, he keeps on this topic because it is vital for you and me to know that we are opposed day by day, minute by minute. And even in, in contexts in which you think it's not going to be adversarial at all. That's what I thought a week ago Friday. And sometimes in a very social setting. Sometimes in a setting that would appear to be very inviting of the gospel when you start to share or when you start to um, put yourself out there as a believer. All of a sudden, the tenor of the conversation could turn very quickly. And, and we should not wilt in those opportunities. You know as well as I do that what's coming, and perhaps it's already here, is a, a lack of tolerance for the gospel, the likes of which we've not yet seen in this country. I think the, the COVID restrictions and quarantines really brought that to the fore. We had pastors going to jail while ABC stores and marijuana dispensaries and, and abortion clinics remained open. I mean, when you, there's, there's no guarantee in the Constitution for people to be able to engage in those activities, but there is a constitutional guarantee for the right to worship the Lord. And, and the fact that they would flout that kind of thing so openly tells you everything you need to know. And so the importance of a mentor, he, he says there in verse 2, now back in our text, well, pick it up in verse 1, he says, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be, we'll stay in Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you. 
and to encourage you in your faith. In other words, it's going to help you stand. It's going to bring you to your feet of faith, that you can stand in that faith. And as he talks about um, Timothy establishing, uh, that word establish comes from this Greek word, sterizo, which, which means to make stable, to place firmly, to strengthen and make firm. And that's what Timothy was doing when he was going to speak to these people in Thessalonica and to get them to the place where they could, they could put up with what they were going to experience there. Many of these people would have lost jobs. They would have been ostracized by their families. Uh, they would have been the scorn of both Jew and Gentile alike. And, um, you know, when you see some of these believers in other countries who face that today, it's humbling. It's humbling to be in the presence of people whose lives are on the line for their faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible is full of examples of how strong people in the Lord got that way. Timothy was a strong man of God because of his relationship with Paul. When we get to the Timothy letters, you're going to see the loving care that Paul took to help to form and guide Timothy's faith. And, and it's wonderful to see. Uh, Moses and Joshua, another great example. How Moses tutored Joshua. How he made sure that Joshua was totally in touch with what was going on between God and Moses. God's plan, as Moses was actualizing it, needed to now be transferred to Joshua. And, and that was one of the great successes of the children of Israel coming into the land and taking it. Jesus and his disciples... The apostles are called apostles because they are messengers of the truth. And they received the truth from the truth himself, Jesus Christ. And so this became um, very important for Paul, knowing that the Thessalonians were going to face a lot of opposition, to send them a mentor, and Timothy was it. He describes <clears throat> the, the qualities that a mentor should have there in verse 2 when he speaks about the fact that Timothy, first of all, is a believer. You know, there are a lot of wise people in our lives. There are people that we may have encountered in our educational experience, in our work experience. And we can look at them and we can say, boy, this person's not only bright, but they're wise. Because the difference between knowledge and wisdom is a, is, is a great one. Uh, wisdom, knowledge is the accumulation of lots of information and the ability to process it. But wisdom is different. Wisdom is the ability to make good choices based on knowledge. And, and those two don't always reside in the same person. As we know, several of them are in our government. Um, so <clears throat> we, have to <clears throat> we have to be very careful when we're looking at somebody that we, we hold up as a knowledgeable person, a wise person. Is that wisdom the right kind of wisdom? Is it godly wisdom? Are they a believer? And then the other thing we have to know about their belief is, <clears throat> are they a believer of some maturity? And maturity, by the way, doesn't come with just the passage of time. I I've met, and I'm sure you have too, a lot of believers who will tell you that they've been a believer for 20 years. And you know in your heart that really they've been a believer for one year, 20 times in a row. Uh, because as we, as we walk in our, in our walk of faith, that... that is a process by which we grow, right? It's the sanctification process. And the sanctification process is a cumulative, 
accretive process. What you know today, the Lord will build upon that if you let him. The Lord will build upon that. As you walk in faith, the Lord will continue to bring you new challenges. He'll continue to bless you in new ways. He'll have the light bulbs go on about new passages of Scripture or even passages of Scripture that you thought you knew well and then one day you look at it and by golly, uh, you see something you never saw there before. And this was something that the writer of Hebrews was desperate to get his audience to understand. He was The, the writer of Hebrews was dealing with an audience who were tempted to turn themselves back to their Jewish faith. They were, they were prepared to let go of the grip of God's grace and go back into the law and all of the things that, that, that came with that. And the writer of Hebrews, he said there in Hebrews 5, 12, and 14, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, in other words, you ought to be mentors, you ought to be mature people helping others along, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. See, babes in the word are not skilled in uh, applying it to righteousness applying it to make hard decisions. And so to have someone as a mentor, yes, by all means, they need to be a believer, but they need to be a mature believer. Somebody who has moved past the milk of the word and is now digging in to the solid things that God's word provides. I commend those of you here and, and the men, by the way, that come to men's Bible study. That Bible study is pound cake. I mean, that is thick. We, we, we go into some pretty deep... We're doing the book of Hebrews right now. Um, you know, that's a pretty dense book. And I commend those of you in this, in this church who, who have a, a hunger after that kind of, let's go deeper, let's, let's explain this further, let's, let's chew on it together. And this is, this is what uh, Paul, Paul wanted to bring to the Thessalonians with uh, with sending Timothy there. Now, there's something else about Timothy that also qualifies him to be a mentor for them. He's described there as a minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel. Timothy was a servant. Timothy uh, was somebody, Paul describes him as a, um, as a minister. Uh, that word from the Greek is diakonos, which is the word from which we get deacon, and a deacon is nothing other than another name for servant. It's troubling sometimes when you go into a church and deacons are, are positioned in the church as some kind of royalty. Um, like you, you go to sit down near the front in the church and there's, there's tags on the pews there that say, don't sit here, this is reserved for the deacons. And I'd have thought, well, they should be in the back in case somebody needs a bottle of water. Thank you, Paul. Right? They're servants. And, uh, and so, so uh, Timothy was a perfect guy to pick because Timothy has a heart to serve. What you and me, what we're all about is sharing the truth. That's, that's why we're here. We're sharing the truth. If God just wanted to make sure we got saved, why wouldn't he just get us saved and take us out? Get us saved. There's another one. There's another one. There's another one. No, our whole reason to be 
is to be billboards of God's grace. If you think your life is too broken and messed up to be of any use to God, I'm here to tell you, perfect. You're just perfect. Go and tell your story. This is what God did in my life. This is how God ministered to me. That's what you're called to do. And, and then to help people. Um, so the next thing that he does for these Thessalonians in this letter is he reminds them of the warnings that he gave them. Look at verses three and four. No one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that you would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. Now, this is an interesting aspect here. Go back to our little example with Levi. Just after we got Levi to his feet and now he's motoring around, the very next thing you do is you start to warn him of danger. Uh, in Levi's house, they, they have stairs. They have two floors. So now you've got to warn Levi about stairs. You've got to warn a child who can walk about the road. All of a sudden now, because you're able to stand and to walk, you have to, be, you have to be conscious of your surroundings and the threats that provide them. And, uh, and so Paul's reminding these believers in Thessalonica that there's a lot of challenges to your faith. Now, as believers, Satan has a whole different mission vis-a-vis -vis you. To the unbelieving world, <clears throat> his desire is to raise up a lot of Mark Solomons who can speak into the life of people and chase them away from any belief in God because Satan wants to take everybody that he can to eternal torment and death in hell. Now, for those of you here that are believers, which I take to be most of you, if not all, Satan's objective with you is completely different because as I mentioned minutes ago, that our whole reason to be is to testify to the greatness of God and the salvation that he has won for us. Satan's mission in your life is to discourage you, is to disparage your faith, not only to the outside world, but to you as well. Satan wants you to believe that really what you say you believe is not true because look what you did, look what you said, look what you thought. How can that be a Christian. How can you be a Christian being a person of that profile? And that is a very effective argument because we know what he's pointing to. We know the rebellion that may have been in our heart when we stumbled into that. Or maybe we didn't even stumble into it. We sought it out, whatever the circumstance is. But the fact remains that Jesus Christ did not come to call the righteous but he came to call sinners to repentance. And when you give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. If you allow him, he will continue to take you down a progression, a walk, if you will, that will transform your life and the things that were, used to be part of the sinful landscape that was your life begin to fade away, melt away, disappear. Others may remain for a longer period of time, and the enemy will do a tap dance on those things to discourage you and to discredit you to yourself. And if the opportunity is there to others, don't let it happen. 
This is a danger that we can all see coming. Peter, the apostle, he tried to warn those who read his first letter in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, this is one of the reasons why I've always taken such umbrance to the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, um, or, or the word faith movement, as it's sometimes known, is a, is a whole theology built around the idea that you can command, that you can speak prosperity, health, wealth, simply by speaking and demanding and believing that God is there to give you that, you will receive that. Now, among many pernicious elements of that particular line of thinking is the one that says that that flies in the face of what the Bible actually tells us concerning trial and prosperity. One of the things Jesus says is the poor will always be with us. That's a little bit of a chilling revelation. You know, we're going to solve world hunger. It's a great ambition and do everything you can. But as long as the world is broken in sin, it ain't going to happen. And the fact remains that, that Jesus has promised us in the world we will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We are not to look to health, wealth, and prosperity as the object of our faith. It's frankly not even our objective. The object of our faith is a man who is God. It's Jesus Christ. And we put our faith there. Jesus Christ gives us a number of days. He numbers our days. We don't know how many we get. But if we can redeem the time that we do have, to glorify and magnify his kingdom, we're doing it. We are doing what God has called us to do. And we do that knowing that we do it against opposition, that we will have trials, that things will be taken from us, loved ones, wealth of any kind or prosperity. These things come and go. Jesus remains firm and sure. And he says there in verse five, <clears throat> for this reason... When I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. I couldn't stand anymore. I needed to know where you Thessalonians were. So I sent Timothy. I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul refers to none other than Satan. That Satan might be successful in moving you off of the truth that has been presented to you. And this is something that I think the world uh, can take very lightly. The idea of evil as something that not just invites you to do things your way, but actually wants to see to your destruction. See, there's a whole lot of people in our society that actually embrace evil. There's a whole genre of rock music that embraces evil, death metal. Uh, there's a whole genre of of, of literature that encourage you, encourages you to go in a satanistic direction because the, the promise of Satan is that you can be as God. It's the same promise that he, he told even then Adam in the garden. 
that you can be as God, that God doesn't want you to have things your way because he doesn't want you to be like him. And people want to embrace that because it's, it's so um, in agreement with where our minds are apart from Christ. Our minds apart from Christ are on ourselves. Our eyes are on ourselves. Our desire is for ourselves. Our worship is towards ourselves. Even if we, you know, deflect it onto some kind of idol that we create that loves everything we love and hates everything we hate, it's still self-worship, isn't it? And that's where Satan directs people's attention and people embrace it willingly, gladly, without knowing that behind that wrapper of self-affirmation, which our culture is big on telling you to do, is death. The enemy's objective, it's not hard to figure out. It's death, your death. And so Paul is very concerned about this. Peter, again, uh, you know, very much echoing what Paul said in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy, or devour rather, Resist him, steadfast in the faith. There it is again, steadfast, standing firm, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The enemy is going to target your faith. He's going to challenge what you know. Did God indeed say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? Just the way he approached Eve. Now, we have to put into this because Paul is providing further encouragement there in verses six through eight. Uh, uh, the good news that's being brought to, to Paul. But that good news is based on the fact that the teaching that Paul had given them when he was with them, these people are embracing and they continue to study it. And this is where we have to understand the power of the word of God in allowing us to stand and then walk in our faith. At the point at which Levi was able to stand to his feet, Paul and Bree didn't say, oh, wow, look, he made it. He's on his feet now. We can stop feeding him. <laughs> I've been in that house, and if you don't feed that child, you got a lot of trouble coming. <laughs> uh, no, uh, he's, he, the, the, the nourishment and the help that he's received has allowed him to stand, but now we want him to walk, and he needs to be fed daily, and we need to be fed daily, and we need to move from elemental spiritual food to more complex and more nourishing and dense spiritual food. Um, and, and, you know, this is, Paul will write in their, his second letter to the Thessalonians the importance of standing fast in what they know. We'll see it when we come to 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. The traditions he's referring to is... <clears throat> all of what Paul would have taught them from the, what we call the Old Testament and then the new concepts that he brought in teaching them. And uh, <clears throat> he would write in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. <clears throat> it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's been well said that doctrine teaches us what is right, Reproof teaches us what is not right. Uh, correction teaches us how to get right. And instruction teaches us how to stay right. And this is the power of the word of God. This is why we place such great emphasis on it in this church. 
uh, whether it be in a men's study, a women's study, the youth over here, the big tent meeting in here, um, the home fellowships when you get together and you chew over the word of God in a more relaxed setting. These are very, very important aspects of our life as Christians and our nourishment in our walk of faith. So now we turn to his last point, which is prayer. And let's just read the rest of the chapter, picking up in verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one, uh, to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, Paul uh, is really kind of laying out his heart in praying to the Lord for these people. And it's interesting because you see this in, in several of Paul's epistles when he's speaking to these beloved churches that he helped or even established himself. He, he has a burden to pray for them. And the Bible really uh, accentuates that burden for any of us who are working in the life of other people in either bringing them to faith or encouraging them in the faith that they already have. We should never be in a position where we believe because of what we see about that person's life that they're just too far gone, they're too far off, you know, this has just been a labor of futility. Uh, they're not seeing it. They're not enjoying it. They're not, they're not coming to it. And we, we kind of let our prayers for that person atrophy. And this is not the Lord. In fact, the prophet Samuel was in this position relative to the, the people of Israel. Um, Samuel was one of the judges of Israel. He was the last judge, actually, in a series of judges. And and the judges of Israel, they, it's not like we consider a judge sitting in a courtroom listening to adversarial things. The judge was somebody who was more or less an intermediary between what God's word said and what the people must do. And so he was somebody who would be able to discern what the word of God is and what the will of God is and then help the people apply it in their lives. And Samuel, being the last judge had the unpleasant experience of the people coming to him and crying out, we want a king just like all the nations around us. We want a human king. We want somebody that we can see with our eye. And of course, what Samuel was reading from that is they're really rejecting God as their king. And this was troubling to him. But listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 12, 23. He says, moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. You see, he could have thrown up his hands and say, okay, you want a human king? Have at it. You'll see what a disaster that'll be. I'm done with this and just walk off. And the Lord kind of softened Samuel's heart because I think Samuel originally read it as they were rejecting him. And the Lord says, no, they're rejecting me, not you. And, and, and Samuel, at that point, somewhere in there, he realizes these are human beings. These are people who are born with a sin nature. These are people who left to their own, they won't see it. And I do not want to sin against the will of the Lord in ceasing to pray for these people. 
And that was the heart of Paul, that he would not cease to pray for these people. You could cease to pray for somebody because you think they got it right now, they're finally going good, I'm gonna not pray for them anymore. That's a problem too. And it's interesting what Paul prays for. He prays for three things. In uh, verses nine and 10, especially 10, he's praying that they would be perfected in their faith. And to be perfected as it's used in scripture means to be made mature. Paul is praying that they will move beyond the elemental aspects of their faith and they will become rock solid in their understanding of the grace of God, the word of God, the will of God, etc., and that it would be manifest in their life. And then he prays um, that the word, that, the, uh, that love would abound among them. Um, he says, um, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. And then the third thing that he prays for is that they would be blameless in holiness before our God. That's verse 13. So we have their be, be, being made mature in their faith, having love abound in the midst of the body of believers there, and to be characterized with personal holiness. Now, the way I see it, the second and third things he prayed for are manifestations of the first thing that he prayed for. If you are a mature believer, you will understand the importance of love in your life. You will understand the depth and the breadth of the love that God has shown you and having received that love from the Lord, far be it from you not to love other people. So love becomes a natural outgrowth and expression of Christian maturity. Likewise, personal holiness is an evidence of maturity in the Lord. An understanding that my doing right by the word of God doesn't earn me salvation. Doing right by the word of God is a celebration of the salvation I already possess. And so I live a, a holy and pure life because I want to magnify the goodness of God that has brought me to a place where I am saved. And this is Paul's prayer for these people. And so this chapter three, it's one of the most encouraging passages of scripture that you'll find where Paul or anybody is writing to a specific church. It's right up there with the church that uh, is written to the church in Philadelphia that you find in um, Revelation, the commendation that was given to that church. And this commendation brings with it some very important things that we need to know about growing in our faith, the importance of having a mentor, somebody that can, that can help us understand uh, what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, being forewarned of trials, understanding that, look, uh, God didn't promise you a rose garden. He promised that you would have tribulation in the world, but that he overcame of the world and that we put our faith and trust in him. Knowing the power of the word of God and having a desire to consume it regularly and deeply. And then finally, um, the power of prayer. Not only prayer to the Lord that he would strengthen you in your faith, but find people in your life that you can pray for, that you are coming alongside. It's often been said that every Christian should have somebody who's mentoring them and they should have somebody to whom they provide mentorship. And I think that's part of the, the, the health of the body of Christ. And so um, I hope you'll take some encouragement away from, from this. I, 
I, for one, um, found it, <clears throat> once again, God's perfect timing uh, to go along with exactly what was going on in my life uh, because I walked into something that um, was very much um, intended to knock me off of the firmness of my belief. And because of the prayers of people like you and the prayers that I was praying before and during <laughs> that experience, um, and maybe it, went, it made for tedious viewing, but it certainly did not move one iota my faith from the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you, <clears throat> Lord, for, Lord, for the power that is in you, the power of your word, the power of your spirit, just how awesome, Lord, you, you have cared for us, you have provided for us. And so, Lord, um, just help us, Lord, not to lose sight of all that we possess because we are yours. It's so easy, Lord, to get called off and drawn off and um, help us to keep our focus, Lord, come what may. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen.